Welcome to Body of Work, an exploration of health topics in the news and important issues facing science with experts from Baylor College of Medicine. I'm Erin Blair, and my guest today is Dr. Harvey Levin, Professor of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. Although we hear the term quite often, what exactly is a concussion, or more clinically, a mild traumatic brain injury? Well, these terms, concussion and mild traumatic brain injury, are interchangeable. This is a sudden onset of neurological changes associated with impact to the head or impact to other regions of the body, which cause sudden acceleration of the brain inside the skull, which have similar effects as an impact to the head. Concussion or mild traumatic brain injury can be detected by observing the individual to lose consciousness or have impaired consciousness. The symptoms that typically arise immediately or after some delay include headaches, dizziness, poor postural control, fatigue, and frequently confusion. However, some concussions, especially in sports, may be difficult to detect just by visually uh, following the player. They may be quite subtle, and the player may not lose any consciousness and may appear to uh, the layperson to be functioning normally. So there are different gradations of concussion and mild traumatic brain injury. You hear a lot about concussions in regards to contact sports. Are just athletes at risk of mild traumatic brain injuries? What other events cause concussions? That's a good question. We hear the term concussion in the news frequently in reference to athletes, but in fact, in non-athletes, the most common causes are falls, motor vehicle crashes, assaults, being struck with an object or impact of the head against a uh, solid object, and the causes depend also on the individual's age. Older people, for example, are more vulnerable to falls. Mm -hmm. And in young adults and late adolescents, motor vehicle crashes are uh, occur at a high rate. I see. So whether it's a, an older person with a fall or a um, cheerleader or a, a professional athlete, car crash victim, can you describe what happens in the brain in a concussion? In a concussion, there's a uh, tearing or stretching of these nerve fibers that connect different regions of the brain. This may be uh, reversible or the effects may be more persistent. And what do those fibers help the brain do ordinarily? They help uh, with communication among different regions of the brain. For example, uh, communication between the prefrontal cortex, which is heavily involved in our cognition, decision-making, computation, and the parietal region, which gets involved in uh, working memory. And we know that complex functioning that we are capable of most days depend on brain networks. So if there is a disruption in communication among brain regions, these relevant networks are dysfunctional 
and we don't perform well. Mm-hmm. Other changes in the brain that I mentioned earlier uh, have to do with focal brain lesions, such as contusions. Is that like a bruise? Yes, it's a bruise to the cortex of the brain. Ah. In fact, these are quite infrequent in sports-related concussion, but they're more common in uh, persons who are involved in a motor vehicle crash, mm. especially a high-velocity rollover. They're much more common, and uh, they contribute to the severity of the impairments that result from the injury. So what kind of post-concussion symptoms do patients experience? How, How long can that persist? The most common symptoms are headaches, dizziness, fatigue, increased sensitivity to light or to uh, noise. The question of how long these symptoms may persist is uh, somewhat unsettled and controversial. What kind of recovery is required? Are there personal factors that might affect the amount of time it would take for someone to recover from a concussion? After a concussion, an individual is more vulnerable to suffering another concussion. Consequently, it's important to observe a period in which the individual refrains from engaging in a contact sport, or even if their hobby is boxing, they shouldn't be uh, sparring. They should take it easy, not completely rest necessarily, but take precautions not to have another injury within a short period uh, after having their first concussion. In the early 1990s, there were seminal reports about college football players and reporting that 90% of these players would fully recover in terms of their symptoms and being capable of returning to play in 7 to 10 days. We now know that there are exceptions to that timeline, particularly in adolescence, for example, high school contact sport athletes, uh, youth contact sport athletes, and also female athletes. In these groups, approximately 20% have not recovered in terms of their post-concussion symptoms even at 30 days after injury. So there are subgroups that are more vulnerable. People who've had uh, previous concussions, people who've had migraine headaches prior to their uh, injury, and individuals who've had some uh, emotional conditions, depression uh, especially, are also more vulnerable to having a longer period of post-concussion symptoms. We've learned that in uh, non-sports-related mild traumatic brain injury, there's a shift toward older age. We also know that mature adults are now more often engaged in sports uh, than they used to be, and we don't know as much about the timeline for their recovery. Say the concussed person was an athlete and continues to play an impact sport. What happens if they endure another concussion? We're still learning about the effects of repeated concussions, and I'll make the distinction between repeated concussions and repetitive head impacts. Repetitive head impacts, for example, in football players, in rugby players, occur often during a typical game. Depending on what position the individual plays, there is emerging evidence that the effects of these repetitive impacts over the course of a season, which can be hundreds of these head impacts, and over successive seasons, thousands of repetitive head impacts, may have cumulative effects 
And there are some investigators who are of the opinion that these head impacts are more deleterious than the concussions. But this is an unsettled question. In regard to repetitive concussions, there's some evidence that the effects are cumulative and also that the distribution of these concussions over time is a relevant uh, factor. In other words, individuals who have repetitive concussion in short succession, for example, separated by days or uh, even a week or two, these might be more deleterious than someone who's had several concussions spread out over a decade. This issue is important not only for athletes, but also in the military, where they may be exposed to repetitive blast related trauma affecting the brain. And in the uh, combat theater, many of these blasts could occur in a short period of time. Would you say that to the individual, a head impact, uh, repeated head impacts, would feel less dire or less less, uh, distressing than a concussion? For the person's experience, uh, the head impacts are probably less of a concern uh, because they don't typically cause symptoms as gotcha. a, following a concussion, as I described earlier. However, we do know that there are effects which are subtle, and there are a small number of recent brain imaging studies showing that over the course of a season, for example, playing hockey or football, there are detectable changes in these brain white matter tracts, which can be seen on a type of imaging called diffusion tensor imaging. And the player may or may not have had a concussion and may or may not be aware of any changes. And it's still not clear whether there are cognitive changes associated with these detectable changes on brain imaging. This is ongoing work and it raises uh, issues, but we're just at the beginning of of this area of research. Why aren't helmets preventing mild traumatic brain injuries? Uh, Helmets are quite important. There's some evidence they may protect against focal lesions of the brain or perhaps a skull fracture, they may prevent that. I don't think it's entirely clear what the effects of helmets are on preventing this sudden stretching of these white matter tracts or these fibers. This effect occurs after an impact to the head. If we think of the brain floating in cerebral spinal fluid, Yes. Uh, an analogy that sometimes is made if you have like a plastic toy in a bathtub full of water, So at the time of the sudden acceleration, deceleration, there's a swirling or rotational acceleration imparted to the brain. And these nerve fibers then may tend to stretch. And if this rotational acceleration is of sufficient velocity, they may tear. Mm -hmm. And the effects of this rotational acceleration to the brain may not necessarily be diminished very much by wearing the helmet. Sure. Uh, It's not keeping the head still in one place. It's just protecting the skull. Exactly. So focal impacts, it does offer protection. But if the head 
is accelerated very quickly and suddenly decelerated as, let's say, a running back running at a high speed and suddenly there's a collision or suddenly the player is thrown on the ground. There is likely to be this type of acceleration-deceleration effect of the brain floating in this cerebral spinal fluid. I understand. That's, uh, it's quite a, an image. Mm-hmm. You had said that the age of the person had an effect on the recovery time. Why is that? An underappreciated aspect of concussion and mild traumatic brain injury is in pre-adolescence and throughout adolescence and until uh, at least the mid-20s, the prefrontal cortex and the underlying white matter connections between prefrontal cortex and other regions of the brain, they're undergoing maturation. So if there are repeated concussions, thousands of head impact during this period of maturation, there is concern about what the long-term effects may be when the individual is an adult. This isn't known, but we do know a, a fair amount about these maturational changes because there have been major uh, brain imaging studies of healthy children and adolescents as they age chronologically. And we suspect that there could be uh, deleterious effects by exposure to multiple concussions and repetitive head impacts. In an older individual, and here I'm talking about a person perhaps uh, 60 years old or older, we know that Uh, there's a higher vulnerability to developing a collection of blood in the subdural compartment of the the brain, even from what we would consider to be relatively minor head trauma. We don't know what the long-term effects of that are, and we don't know much about what the long-term effects of concussions and repetitive head impacts may be as a person is getting into their 50s and 60s and 70s. But We do know that from epidemiologic studies that having a history of concussion and mild traumatic brain injury is a risk for developing neurodegenerative diseases such as Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. In recent years, we've heard a lot about aging football players and boxers having CTE. What is CTE? Anyone that is attentive to the news has heard about chronic traumatic encephalopathy, which is a pathological diagnosis. It's not a a diagnosis made clinically in a living person. It's a diagnosis made strictly on the presence of specific pathologies in the brain. So it's made in brains that have been donated, and at this point, Point, most of these brain donations came from uh, families of former athletes, particularly NFL football players. And in studies of these brains, the presence of chronic traumatic encephalopathy has been confirmed in a large proportion of these uh, donated brains. And it's thought that this occurred as a result of being exposed to multiple concussions and repetitive head impacts over the course of their careers as athletes. However, it's unclear how much of a risk factor this is 
for the other thousands, millions of athletes. These athletes whose brains were donated had very extensive careers playing at the highest level of professional football. We don't know to what extent any of this can be generalized to people that played contact sports in college or high school or younger, and we don't know what the threshold is for causing this type of pathology. Chronic traumatic encephalopathy typically begins in the depths of the frontal lobes involving white matter below the cortical surface, and it's associated with an excess of what's described as hyperphosphylated tau. Tau is, a, is found in other brains, but an excessive amount is found in the brains of individuals who have CTE pathology. And initially, it's located in a very vocal or discrete region of the brain, but as the years pass, it tends to spread to other regions, such as to the temporal lobe, the parietal lobe, and it may become diffuse through the brain. And as it increases, there are associated changes or degeneration of the brain that can even be seen on on imaging. But in the early stages, it cannot be seen uh, or detected by currently available brain imaging. But again, this is under investigation. With the changes in the pathology as it progresses, there have been published descriptions of the onset of changes in behavior and in cognition. But this is based on retrospective reports by family members because the pathology has been analyzed in the brains of former athletes primarily, and these individuals did not undergo any particular assessments before their death. So it's all based on retrospective reports by families who were interviewed at some point after the pathology was analyzed. So you're saying that CTE can only be detected with the donation of the brain of a, of a, a dead athlete. It's a pathological diagnosis. It's not detected. So there's in, not biomarkers or anything like that that we can see now and say, oh, that's a problem. You're well, going to have more problems as you get older. You know, there, are, there, there are biomarkers, ah. uh, and there are studies that have been done. For example, I mentioned the tau. Mm-hmm. There was a study of analyzing the cerebral spinal fluid of boxers in Sweden. These were, I think they were Olympic level boxers, and they had analysis of their tau from undergoing spinal taps. And there was some elevation, and it tended to be elevated after they had finished bouts, boxing matches. But we don't know what the threshold is for tau. We don't know what predictions can be made by doing this measurement of tau in the spinal fluid. And there's now some biomarkers that are measured using positron emission tomography, which is a type of brain imaging or nuclear medicine. And this work is ongoing. We still have very little data about how frequently there's uh, an elevation of tau in on this, it's called PET scanning, and we don't know yet to what extent this is predictive of changes in cognitive performance or changes in behavior. 
So most of the information on cognitive problems and behavior at this point is based on this retrospective interview information that was obtained from the next of kin of those whose brains have been analyzed pathologically. Can we attribute any particular diseases or conditions to CTE, or is it well, CTE, retroactive? To CTE is a disease. It's a neurological degenerative disease. But what has been reported is that there is a co-occurrence in a subgroup of these brains with evidence for Parkinson's disease and possibly Alzheimer's. What steps are being taken to prevent CTE or multiple mild traumatic brain injuries? There have been changes in the clinical management. This is particularly the case in sports in which there are health providers, which can be physicians, there are athletic trainers, neuropsychologists who perform various standard tests on uh, players after they've had a concussion. And these tests are often done pre-season, so there's a baseline while the player is healthy. So these tests include a checklist for the symptoms such as headaches and dizziness, and cognitive performance, reaction time, attention, memory. This kind of assessment is done, and before the player can return to play, she or he has to have resolution of these symptoms. Their postural control or balance has to be returned to normal, and their cognitive performance has to return to normal. So they're monitored by the health provider, and when they're thought to have been clinically recovered, they're cleared to return to play. And this is very common now in school systems, high schools, in collegiate uh, sports, and professional sports. The concussions are managed. I don't know that there's as much reporting about how they're managed as there is at the college level. Mm -hmm. In regard to mild traumatic brain injury, not sports-related, I think there's a lot of work to be done. And here I'm referring to individuals who are brought to the emergency department. The rate of clinical follow-up of these individuals is fairly low. Mm. And in my view, there's a lack of standard protocols that we see have been developed in the care of athletes. Now, of course, in the individuals who are cared for in uh, emergency departments, these individuals are not returning to practice and to games where they're going to be exposed to more head impacts. So it's much different, but that's not to say that closer follow-up, especially of individuals at high risk for persistent post-concussion symptoms. I think a case could be made that these subgroups should be followed up and they may need some follow-up care. Do you think that parents should discourage their children from engaging in contact sports? Is it something where there's enough known about traumatic brain injuries to caution young people against contact sports altogether? This is a difficult question, which I think many families are confronting. I think, taking football as an example, I think the quality of the training by the coaches is extremely important. One aspect of this is that, from what I've read, 
the quality of the training and oversight of student uh, athletics tends to be much higher at the level of collegiate sports than, for example, junior high school and high school. It's not to say anything disparaging. And I would surmise that there are major differences across the school. Some schools have higher quality programs than others. But I do think that it should be thought through very carefully, and the player and the family should be aware of the risks. And I think it's important for the player, if she or he is hit and is experiencing the symptoms that we've discussed, that they should come forward and mention this to their coach. Not try to be tough about it. Exactly. Because in the past, and unfortunately even at present, there's a tendency for some players to feel, you know, they're very loyal to their team. They want to make a contribution. They may feel macho, and they may be reluctant to come forward and say that they were hit, they're, they're, they have headache, they're dizzy. And we know now there is a vulnerability after having a concussion. This individual has to have some rest, not for a real long time, maybe a couple of days, but they should definitely not be in play. And they need to go through the concussion management that we talked about and gradually return to exercising and training with the team and then returning to game. But they have to go through this concussion management. If they don't, based on the evidence that we have, this is increasing their risk of persistent effects that may only be detected later when they're adults. Can you tell us a little bit about your research areas? My research areas include concussion and sports concussion. Recently with colleagues at Baylor and at University of Texas Medical School in Houston, we completed a study of high school athletes who had sustained concussion. They were primarily football players. And we tested the hypothesis that players who had a concussion and were thought to clinically recover within 30 days and were cleared by their health providers to return to football would still have aberrant or dysfunctional brain imaging findings on advanced brain imaging. So our hypothesis was that the brain was not recovered in these individuals, even though they were clinically cleared, cleared to, return. to return to play. And we had a control group of similar athletes, similar demographic features, but they had an orthopedic injury, no involvement of the head. And sure enough, we found that there was evidence on the functional MRI that their brain networks were still dysfunctional. Mm. And we also found on diffusion tensor imaging that these white matter tracts were not recovered to what would be normal for their age. So we are planning a follow-up project to that to look at uh, related questions, for example, comparing male and female athletes in their recovery of brain function and structure, as well as their clinical recovery. With all that you know about traumatic brain injury, you bicycle in the Texas Medical Center. Do you ever think about the fact that you could, be in, you could injure your own brain? 
<laughs> I, 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 it probably crosses my mind uh, several times a week, and I try to be careful. I have to balance that against my enjoyment, exercise, and I have an excellent parking space free of charge. So uh, there are benefits, but I have to be careful. Thank you for tuning into Body of Work by Baylor College of Medicine. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe and be on the lookout for our next episode. If you like the show, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to listen. We're available on Spotify, Apple Podcast, and Stitcher, as well as at bcm.edu slash podcast. There you can also find the episode notes, including information about the experts featured on the show. A quick note about the medical advice and opinions stated in this podcast. Each individual's health profile is unique, so please see a health professional about any questions you may have. Until next time, take care.